Dr. Will here, and it's my pleasure to bring you this uh, little seminar on addictions, especially addictions among professionals, executives, things like personal coaches, NLP practitioners, hypnotists, and that. Why addiction is prevalent in our fields and what we can do about it. I like to say, you know, it's the neural pathways in, in the brain. So thank you for being a part of this, and now <clears throat> let's have some fun. And I'm sitting here as I record this, uh, for people that don't know me, I'm in Florida, the United States, and a couple months ago, we had a big hurricane, did a lot of destruction. Um, in fact, we're still building out and trying to fix things that are here, that are going on. So it's kind of put a crimp in my, uh, what I've been doing lately. But I share that when it comes from addictions, because that's the kind of things people run into when they're trying to overcome an addiction. Life gets in the way. Can you be flexible and work around what's going on in your life? That becomes the question. Uh, right now, you know, I've got pets. Uh, we have a macaw, it's a big bird, makes a lot of noise. And of course, it's out kind cage got destroyed with a couple of uh, storage facilities I had right outside my house. So it's kind of put a crimp in it. So if you hear a bird scream in the background, that's what it is. Just let you know, I'm a real life human being with things going on. So, but again, follow me for more information if you want more. You can go to nfnlp.com or drwillhorton.com. Of course, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, or you can reach out uh, wherever you're watching this and ask me questions. So today, as we get started, I'd like you to think about, you know, addictions, trauma, and maybe in the time of COVID, how it affected yourself. So ask yourself, though, how can I use this info today? Uh, what can I learn new today? Maybe some of this, if you're in this world, it is, or you've researched it, it, you've already come across it. But what can I learn new? You ever read a book twice and it, it seems different or watch a movie the second time? So what can I learn new today? How can I have fun today? Because fun releases the neural chemicals for learning and growth. And I always ask on a personal note, how can I be a better person today? So we're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to go fast. Uh, but I'd like you to set up the idea that when it comes to addictions, it's with yourself, with you, or your clients, it's not your fault. Because you've been set up to fail by our neurology, our society, and sometimes our family and that goes to extended family, like work, the profession, things like that. So we're kind of set up to fail, right? Because the truth is, the truth is, you know, when we think of addictions, we think about how the addict or the alcoholic is affected, but it affects everyone around them. Like in this little picture, their daughter, their families, uh, you know, businesses, clients, you know, if you're an executive, and I'm kind of putting this towards executives, professionals, and things, things along that, you know, it, it, affects your, it affects your employees, it affects all the people around you, and society in general. That's why I'm so passionate about it, right? Now, I've been in this field for over 35 years, uh, and I can tell you, uh, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of misinformation, right? But I've done a lot of things right over the years. But I've also done a lot of things wrong, you know, and it's been an evolution. If you're in a field a long time, you either evolve or you go extinct. You know, you adapt or you perish. And so, you know, 
things have changed. What we know about neurology, what we know about the neurochemicals of the brain, a lot of this has changed how we look at these things. Now, after doing this for over 35 years, again, I've discovered that treatment has not changed in over 60 years, if, if not a little longer. And what happens in all fields, psychology, medicine, even the personal coaching, we blame clients for what I would call bad treatment because many of us develop a one-size-fits-all mentality. It worked for me or it worked for my clients, therefore this is the only way. Well, that's not good. And the traditional model and what a lot of people do, they really doesn't fit professionals, executive, business owners, personal coaches, and people like that. And I'll get into why in a moment. But first we have to look at, is it a habit or is it an addiction? Now, Dr. Wendy Wood says about 45% of our lives are habits, right? And basically a habit is an action that you took one time and you know that you had to decide to do something, how to drive, what you were gonna do. It was that. So it becomes a habit after you don't have to think about it. You know, how you drive, if you go to your office, how do you drive to your office every day? How do you drive to the, something you do all the time? You don't think about it, right? Because it's basically pre-conscious. I wouldn't necessarily say subconscious, it's pre-conscious, you know? Uh, you just drop into it. Now the upside is habits free your brain. The downside is it becomes a neural pattern that may be hard to break, right? Because as Dr. Ann Graybill from MIT says, our brains are hardwired, if you will, to seek optim optimality of cost benefit. In other words, a habit saves brain power, right? And what happens when you're learning something new, it takes high brain activity. <clears throat> uh, I always think of driving a car, you know, hands at 10 o'clock, two o'clock, being very careful, checking the mirrors, doing this, you know, you don't want people talking to you. You know, it's using a lot of thought processes. But what begins to happen after you've done it a little while is, and this is a good thing or a bad thing, is you don't think about it. You think about starting and then your brain goes on autopilot. This is very important if you're trying to change a habit like drinking too much, uh, getting high too often, eating too much, eating the wrong foods, right? So which is it, you know? <laughs> That's the major question, right? A habit is a great servant, but it's a horrible master. It frees you up to do certain things. <clears throat> you know, I was just talking to someone and we were at the health club and they were working out and they noticed I changed, you know, changed my workouts and changed how I look. I've been doing some things, right? And I said, well, the hardest part for me was because I've worked out my entire life since I was like 11 years and <clears throat> I I said, I had, a, I had a lot of habits that became like the invisible structure of how I work out. I had to change that. It took a lot of conscious effort, right? To change that, right? Because the habit didn't require a thought process. You know, I'd walk in, okay, it's whatever, this day I'm gonna do, you know, um, chest, shoulders, triceps, if you're into weightlifting, da, 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 right? I had to consciously change how I work out, right? But habits eliminate the need for self-control. You just drop into autopilot. You know which exercise you're going to do. I had to add that self-control of, no, I'm going to do a different workout and do it a different way, right? And so, you know, that is what we're working with, right? And again, you know, treatment's not changed. It's kind of stuck where it is. It's in a habit of its own that maybe we need to change. And especially it doesn't fit professionals sometimes, executives, business owners, 
coaches. There's a whole thing about coaches, you know, being practitioners, therapists, like uh, 90% of my clients that, that call me in this world uh, are from the personal coaching, uh, alternative therapy world, or there are other, they're psychologists and professionals. Um, so it's a different mindset, right? Now, what happens when it's, when people are trying to change habits? I'm going to focus on alcohol, booze, if you will, right? Because alcohol is the most abused drug uh, in the world, <clears throat> in the Western world. It is, causes more death than all the other drugs combined. You know, it's not fentanyl, it's not heroin, it's not crack, it's alcohol, right? Because it's still, it's socially acceptable, right? Now, what happens when people want to make a change? They try in vain to stop. They try traditional treatment or therapy. They try willpower. This coaches, uh, professionals, they're going to try willpower because they know what to do. Well, it doesn't really change. They may try a 12-step program uh, or some alternative, right? Uh, now, any of these may work. But you have to be flexible to find out what works. Because one of the problems I see in our world of the personal coaching and and that and I see all over the internet is someone's creates a protocol because it worked for them. Therefore, this is the only way to treat an addiction, and they're going to do this. They are not flexible enough to go. Well, every person might need something a little bit different. You know, it's it, you know. After, like I said, you know, I've worked in inpatient, outpatient, uh, 12-step base model, non-12-step model, uh, prisons, jails. It gives you a different viewpoint. You know, it gives you a different mindset. It doesn't mean you're not a good coach or therapist or whatever you are. It's just that, you know, uh, you are you haven't been trained enough to understand the nuances of what's going on. Right? So an addiction or a bad habit cycle. Right, because the word addiction has a lot of baggage, but basically it's like you have an itch that you need to scratch, that you, and it's usually like stress related. I need to release. I need to let go. And so, you know, could be alcohol, could be drugs, smoking, food, sex, gambling, whatever it is. But it's some people would say it's a trauma response. But a lot of our addictions are socially accepted. You know, drinking, relaxing. It's not only socially acceptable, it's socially encouraged. My evidence for that is uh, watch how, like if you're at a big social function and there's a lot of drinking going on, and then the one person that doesn't drink, how they're treated when they say, no, I don't want anything to drink. You sure, we got this, we got that, right? And now the same thing's beginning to happen with um, marijuana, you know, with vaping and, you know, the, the cannabis and the edibles. It's becoming socially accepted. And basically what it is, the addiction, if you want to call it that, falls into the intermittent reward, right? Research has proved if you have an occasional reward for a behavior, that behavior becomes more ingrained because you're trying to get that reward, right? And then you become invested in this because you get a cycle of dopamine and happiness or pleasure short-term at the beginning, right? But it can cause some problems later on. Now, you have to remember, your brain's job is to keep you alive. That's it. Its first function is to search for the threat. You know, we're only a few hundred years removed from looking for lions, tigers, bears, morning tribes, things like this. So it's constantly on the threat. Right? And then after that, it's also looking for food, 
shelter. And I mean, that's it. That's what you're That's the free program. This is in your DNA. You know, we don't want to act like, oh, this, no, it's what's always going on. Right? Now, it, a lot of what happens in the addiction world is they use the rats. To, what happened in Western world, especially, is in the late 60s, they, they did a study where they took some rats, they got them hooked on. Uh, several substances, heroin, alcohol, different things needed to different treatment. And what they found was, especially a male rat, they'd get it all good. And then they would like throw in a female rat in heat, which they expect with the biology that the male rat would respond. It would not. It just kept doing its thing, right? They would grow good food, no kept getting hot or drinking, or whatever it was, right? Uh, even when there was a shot plate put in, it would step on the shot plate to get to the the the, the substance, right? And so what that proved this, and that started our zero tolerance that alcohol, drugs, the substance is the problem, right? And then when they added the shot plate, what they found was this because there was always a question like, why don't people stop drinking? She's drinking this thing. Because they got the DUI. If you get another one, you're going to jail. You lose your license. Your wife is going, your husband's going to divorce you. Your boss walks in and says, you know, we're going to fire you if you have a job, right? There's jail time in the future. Negative things didn't stop the behavior, just like the rats kept stepping on the shot plate, even though it hurt to get the reward, right? And this is why these things happen, right? Now, what happens a lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, is professionals. Ex executives, professionals are often kept from repercussions because they can they, they, they can build them up. You know, their staff will take care of it. They can afford the best lawyers. Uh, so where a normal person might, you know, get a few days jail time, they tie it up with the legal system, right, in the Western right? And so sometimes, or they build their business in such a way, even though they're not effective anymore, the employees around them know we got to take care of, you know, Bob or Betty, because if we don't, the company's going to fold and then we're all thrown out. So that's where the, the thing can happen. It's also where if you're a, people that are coaches and therapists, they have some knowledge, but knowledge doesn't affect the change, right? In fact, it, it develops what I call the paradox of knowledge. The harder they try, the harder it becomes. So let me give you my model of addictions, right? Which is, if you follow me on this, this file, right? You're born, you're basically tabloids. You're in a box, right? You're, you, don't, you don't drink or drug. Let's use those two, right? Now, so you're abstinent, right? You just don't, right? So you, there's no use. You're abstinent, right? Then you drop into, eventually, especially in the Western where you're going to experiment with drugs or alcohol and maybe both, right? And as much as every parent says, not my kid, it's probably going to happen in high school, college. In adolescence, generally, we're going to experiment with drugs or alcohol. Now, most people that experiment go on to, to drink or use maybe social. Now, when they first experiment with drugs or alcohol, you always get a few people that go, I don't like to speak. You know, I don't like the loss of control. I don't like the way it makes me feel. It disagrees with me. 
they never, they, they just, they're abstinent by choice. They just go, nope, I'm not doing this, right? Fine. But most people drop into social use. They can drink, not drink, it's no problem. Um, you know, they don't think about it all the time. You know, I'm not saying they might not get drunk. There might not be some negative affect. They go to a wedding, they get drunk, man, but it's like they drink, it's social use, right? But then, so you have the abstinent social, you know, experiment. And, and some people experiment, but go back to abstinence. Some people will drop down into social use. And then for some people, they move into the abusive drinking phase, right? Where it becomes a habit, right? Good or bad, maybe self-medicate to escape the stress. Uh, maybe it's to give them the courage to do the things they don't want to do. But it becomes a habit, right? And they're abusing it. Maybe they're getting in trouble again, like, you know, there's negative affect, right? But they keep doing it. Maybe a guy or a girl goes through a bad breakup divorce. They're broken hearted. They don't know how to cope, so they're drinking too much, right? Uh, someone loses their job to no fault of their own. They don't know how to cope with it. They start drinking to feel better, right? Things like that, right? So it becomes a habit, you know, could be, or they lose a love. These things you're drinking. We see it in COVID where a lot of your self, you know, things you did to make yourself feel better, go to the gym, go out to eat, go to the theater, go to all these social things, maybe were taken away. And now what do you do, right? Even like work, if you were used to working in an office where you got a lot of your social feedback, right? Now that was taken away. You're working, but you're working online. So you start drinking because it just feels good. So it becomes a habit. And it could be negative, but it could be a different one. Like a guy or girl goes to college and they get into a fraternity or sorority here in the state where they drink a lot, right? There's a drunken frat boy, the drunken sorority system. You're ripping it up, right? Now, and there's negative affect. They're they're getting in trouble, but you know, they're squeaking by, but the drinking, let's say, is causing a problem. And this happens with a lot of professionals, right? Uh, they're but they're squeaking by, right? Now, many of these people, when whatever that situation is, resolves, right? They work through the depression or the divorce, the job loss, they get another job, they get another relationship, and they feel better, and the drinking goes back to social use. I wouldn't have said this, you know, 30 years ago, but the drinking goes back, right? <clears throat> or they graduate college, and they, they get a job, they do some things, and the drinking goes back to normal. They're not, you know, they, they just come. They go back, right? Right, right. Now, you know, and this also happens like guys in the military. Sometimes that happens. It's a, it's a response, right? But you always get that small subset of people that are abusing it. They go down to what we would call a genetic predisposition. They cannot not use, right? They're the person that never gets over the divorce. They're the person that never gets over the job loss. They're the person that, you know, is constantly, you know, stuck in that cycle. They're the, I always like to say, the 40-year-old friend, right? That even though in movies, we'll, we'll laugh at it, but in real life, it would be sad, right? It's, you know, and so yet, you know, they're stuck, right? And many professionals are stuck in either the abuse or the addiction, right? And so they need some help to get out, right? So when you look at the levels, you know, uh, abstinent experiment social use abuse addiction okay 
Now, most of the people can go through all of these levels, except for the addiction part, and go back to normal. The addiction part, there seems to be genetic predisposition, and people argue with this, that they either drink or not drink. They either get high or not get high. They can never do it socially. Right? And this kind of coincides when we looked at that, what they called the happy rat study. They took the rats, got them hooked. They revisited that study. And what they did is they got the rats hooked on the drugs and the other. But rather than throw in a female or throw in food, they took the rat out of the unhappy rat cage and put them in a happy rat cage where there was you know, other rats, there were baby rats, there was food, it was this. Now all the rats they took out of the unhappy rat cage and went into the happy rat cage, the, they just stopped, right? They they just stopped, even though the, you know, what they trained the rats to get the addictive thing from, like a colored water bottle, they the rats would avoid it, right? Almost all, if I remember the study, right? So it's so it was the unhappy rat cage. It was the fraternity. It was the depression of going through the divorce of the job loss, of the loss of a loved one. Those are the unhappy cages. So when you put people back into a better cage, they got better, right? And this kind of coincided with, uh, you know, at the height of the Vietnam War, we had a, you know, a couple million men go to combat. Uh, any given time, height, 500,000 in any given year and substance abuse was rampant right because it was an unhappy place to be most of the people did not want to be there they were drafted right or even if they joined one of the other branches they they it was just what they had to do right they didn't want to be there it was an unpopular war it wasn't like hey thank you for your service and thanks for oh, no it's like bad it was bad so they didn't want to be there. Some people were self-medicating, right? They were in Southeast Asia, Vietnam. So they're, you know, it's the Golden Triangle where they had hashish and heroin and good drugs. And then, of course, the military shipped in a lot of alcohol. And so people were self-medicating. So they were gearing up for this huge problem when these guys came back. And by the way, we trained them in combat skills, right? Weapons and combat skills. Um, what are we going to do with all these people? So they were gearing up for this huge problem. Well, guess what happened? When most of the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines came back, most of them, most of them uh, did not have that much of a problem. They went back to normal, right? They got out of the unhappy rat cage of Vietnam, and then they got back into wherever they were from, and they there was a little period of adjustment, and then they were fine. The ones that seemed to have a problem either had a genetic predisposition to it or they were moving from one happy, unhappy rat cage to another. You know, they had to go back to, a, you know, an inner city or a part that a place they didn't want to be. They had to go back to a, a profession they didn't want to go into in the first place. Right. Uh, so then they stay. Right. So what happens? Right. And this is the fascinating part of it. Right? So is it a disease of connection, right? And there's some epigenetics. If you have the if you have the genetic predisposition, they do know now that the liver, especially with alcohol, uh, and they're finding a similarity with um, THC, the active ingredient marijuana, that the body doesn't burn it off the same for everyone. 
right? So let's say, you know, you drink four beers, it should be out of your system in like six hours, but there's a certain subset and it doesn't get out of your system as well, right? So that's the epigenetic part, right? Also, if you're in an unhappy rat cage and alcohol removes it, it seems like for a moment, that when the alcohol wears off, you're still there, right? And it could be related to things from your past where it stops you from connecting to, with other people, right? And many times professionals and executives by nature are kept away from the support system, right? Because a lot of people, you know, a lot of their support system is work. There's friends, there's people they can talk to, right? Now, COVID or being an executive was interesting because what happened was that was taken away. If you move up, if you're a, if you move up into the executive level, you really doesn't, you're managing people. You know, they're not your friends at that point, right? So you got to manage this, you know, so you don't really have that same connection that you had earlier, right? It's a different connection, right? And again, or if you're a coach or a, or a personal development person, you know, most of your relationships are with clients or students, which is great, but, you know, you it's like the business owner that surrounds himself with yes, man. You may not, you may not have that connection with people that can help you, right? And so what happens in the medical model, they, they separate mind-body. The body's machine, a thing. The mind is separate. They focus on fixing the machine, surgery, drugs, and the mind will follow. Logic is paramount. Now, many MDs, medical doctors, and most psychiatrists, a lot of psychologists, by the way, will push for a quick fix, a drug, like an antidepressant, uh, anti-anxiety. Um, they used to give a, a, a drug called antabuse, which is still around. In fact, it's making a comeback because it gives you, it, it blocks something and it blocks your liver. So if you drink, you get deathly ill, right? It's a quick fix. It's not helping long term. Right, so they're separating the two. Just fix the body; the mind will follow. Don't worry. Uh, now the psychology model and the hypnosis model splits it from conscious subconscious, right? But it's a limited view. It doesn't ex explain trauma resistant, you know, treatment resistant trauma. It doesn't explain why people can get out of the habit or the addiction cycle and then go back into it. So, you know, uh, it's limited by nature. And many times uh, they don't have a broad enough understanding of, of addictions in general and what works and what doesn't work. So if you think about it another way, what I like to say is basically, you know, you have three minds. You have your, you have your basic mind, you know, your reptilian mind. This is where habits really get formed. Right? This is the thing that just wants to keep you alive. Now, what happens if you have that genetic predisposition, or if you don't want to say that, if the habit has dropped down to this level of your mind, it's like I have to do this to stay alive. It's a reptilian response. Right? How do I not do this? Right? And then you have your mammalian mind, which is, you know, where a little bit higher thought. Uh, where you can learn things, right? And then you have your social mind, but we're constantly bouncing between the three minds, right?
Now the social engagement mind, the social engagement mind, the social engagement mind, now our social engagement mind, our highest mind, needs social engagement to stay healthy, right? Um, you know, at the lower levels, uh, animals don't need a group. As they move up, when you get into the mammalian mind, you have, you know, wolf, you have packs, you have groups that get together, right? Now, what really happens in the human mind, uh, most evolved, if you will, uh, is you need this social engagement to stay healthy, right? And we read people's faces, their posture, whether they're friend or foe, because that thing in your your mind is still operating. Are you a friend? Are you a foe? Can I feel safe? Right? That's why we teach people rapport skills, right? And basically, we have this ventral vagal nerve, which is where when it's when you're okay with everything, you feel present, you're in the moment, you feel safe, you it's a happy place, right? But what may help you in business can stop that social engagement, right? Where you got to be a little bit more standoffish. You don't want to connect with people. You're very selective with that. You know, if you're, if you're a personal coach or therapist, you know, there's the professional relationship, but you don't, you know, you don't want to get countertransference and make them something they're not. So it can help you be successful in one area, but it can stop you from that social engagement which is what you need to get out of an addiction. It's why we see, if you will, the 12-step model work, right? Because it's a social engagement protocol. You go to meetings, you get active with your, with like a sponsor, your friends in the program, things like that. It's a way to socially engage. You know, it's one of the myths that the hypnosis in the NLP world private coaching world do not understand about that. You know, if a person has lost their support network, their their family, their friends, uh, work, and now they're trying to give up the addiction, which is the only way they self-medicate, well, they still got to get a social engagement, right? Uh, I would argue, you're not going to go to the bar and sit there and drink Coca-Cola. Never seen that work in 35 years, right? Eventually, you're probably going to drink again, right? It's the old saying of, you know, if you hang around a barbershop long enough, you will get a haircut, right? And so you need to be, you need to find a way to develop another social network, right? And again, COVID, what we're just coming out of in the world, added to this, right? Because we're relationship creatures, right? And if stress makes it impossible to cultivate those interpersonal relationships, everything begins to collapse, right? You know, your dorsal vagal nerve, which is the second part of that nerve, uh, goes into shutdown. So you look at everybody as a threat, can't trust people, can't. And this is also what happens in business, right? You become an executive. People are, you know, I'm going to work for a corporation. I want the next level job. Well, there's 20 of us at this job. There's only going to be two of those. Are these people, can they be your friends or are they your threat, right? It depends how you, you know, your social skills that you had going in, right? So how do you do this, right? And what you need to heal if, you, if you're in an abusive phase of substance, connection becomes fearful. You know, things that should be pleasurable, intimacy, and not just, I don't mean sex, but being close with another human being, 
becomes a source of threat or pain. And many people aren't caught intimacy outside of sex, right? You're only intimate with your partner. No, what about your friends? Do you have someone you can relate to that you can talk about, right? And we're not taught that, especially men, by the way, right? And again, if you're a coach, if you're an executive, who can you be intimate with? And I don't mean in the sexual way, just in the emotional way, right? And again, executives, professionals, men can fall that way. They don't have intimate connections. So words don't work if you're stuck here, right? Because remember, parts of these parts of your mind here, if you will, your brain, are 400, 500 million years old. They don't work on language. They only work on like what they would call a felt sense. You can't have a rational conversation because they do not understand language, right? And so it becomes a nervous block. It becomes like a clogged drain that you need to clear out. You know? That's why lots of therapy or hypnosis or NLP works in the short term. Even regression seems to work in the short term, and then it will constantly come back. It's like you're always waiting for the stressor that will set set it off, right? So, you know, you have to un you have to unwind this release stored trauma, right? And many of this has to be done from the outside. You can't really do it yourself. You, know? you can be the best heart surgeon in the world. You can't do your own heart surgery, right? You can't think the thought and be the thinker, right? So you have to. There there are polyvagal techniques, there's uh, different techniques to relieve this, release the stored trauma or stress in the nervous system. Then you can move on to doing the other things, right? And so, because you have to discharge this to even clear out, right? If you don't, it's stored in your body and it'll always be there. If the person says, I haven't had a cigarette in 20 years, but I think about a cigarette at least 20 times a day. They haven't recovered. They're just fighting. They haven't released that thing, right? And other people will go through something, doesn't matter what, that will release that stored energy in the body. And it's like, I'm, I've been removed. The compulsion to use, to drink, to get high, to gamble uh, has been removed, right? So it has to be addressed at the body level, right? So this, it may be related to PTSD, Right. And what happens a lot is especially people become executives, professionals, coaches. If they have little bits of this in them and they don't have that and they've lost their intimate connections with peers, that's the word I kept looking for. Right. You you could develop the imposter syndrome. And then what begins to happen, you get the addictions flare up, depression, anxiety, and again. The success many get in business can start the cycle of destruction, right? Especially if they get super successful, you see it all the time, you know, where they end up self-destructing. When from the outside, you're like, well, they're they're a multimillionaire, they're a billionaire, they're this, they're that. Why, you know, think about performing arts, you know, they're a superstar, they're rich, they're famous, you know, their career is on autopilot, and then they kill themselves or they can't beat the addiction, right? And again, it's that it's that cycle, you know? <clears throat> so again, your thoughts, it can express genes, if you will. Is there a genetic predisposition, 
right? But what we know now is sometimes things can be passed down through your genes, right? Like the fears your grandparents and your parents had can be passed down. There's some research in the short point out that like one of the issues with the obesity uh, in the Western world is our grandparents and great-grandparents went through the depression, right? And, and World War II where there were food shortages, right? And so, and in fact, it goes back, you know, for most of history, starvation was normal for a big swath of the population, right? And it gets passed down. And now that we're constantly surrounded with food, maybe we overeat. Same with, you know, the other things that we have, right? And so the top NLP techniques that seem to help if you remove the, the energy block is the visual squash technique. And there's examples uh, included, right? The magic mirror technique. But you have to do the addictions version, which is included. So you watch that, right? Now the new behavior generator in the swish, uh, I didn't do a demo, but if you, those are classic NLP techniques. The visual squash, I have, you have to do with the example of the addiction. You need the magic mirror with the example of addiction. And again, this can give you some relief, but you need to clear out the, the, <clears throat> the energy block. And again, if you're stuck, you know, many business professionals, medical people, psych pros, therapists, all that are stuck, right? But, and they don't know where to get help, right? And you can, your success can stop you from getting that. So if you're drinking too much or getting too high or, or doing that, then you fall into the paradox of knowledge. You have a lot of information, but you can't drop it down into this. And you can't think your way out of a thinking problem, right? Um, and, you know, we see it. We see it in, in our world where people go to conferences and, and things and they they partake too much, right? And again, that's where the social network begins to kick in. People think it's funny. Oh, it's fine. You know, you're, it's whatever, right? Where I would wonder, would they tell that to their client? That like, no, no, you're going, you know, you're going to a conference. You're going to Vegas or you're going here. It's fine. You know, drink yourself into oblivion one night. Not remember what you do. It's fine. No, I mean, but it's this, you know, because in our culture, and when you're going to, if you're going to work with people with addictions, one of the things I tell people, and one of the things you have to focus on, is in our culture, ladies and gentlemen, in our culture, if you don't drink, you're weird in Western, right? Are you sure we have beer? We have, they'll go through the whole list, you know, or, well, don't you want to have any fun? And I actually heard this recently, professionally, right? You know, when I was there and somebody didn't know me, and they go, hey, would you like a drink? I go, no, nah. they go, well, we got everything. We can do this. I'll, I'll buy, you know, I'm like, no, it's fine. And they looked at me and go, I guess you just don't want to have any fun. I don't need alcohol that fun, right? But from their expression and a couple of people around them, they honestly didn't connect that because most people that have a drinking or drug problem, 
that never change, one of their biggest fears is I'll never have fun again. No. And so that's one of the things you have to work, work with, right? So if you have any questions, reach out, uh, Dr. Will Horton at gmail.com. Uh, find me on Facebook or Twitter, Instagram, all those places. Uh, DrWillHorton.com. Just there's a way to leave a message and I'll get back to you. Uh, try the two demo techniques, right? Uh, and again, if you're a coach or professional and you want to work with addicts or alcoholic, it's a broad-based, uh, very specialized field, um, at least in my opinion. You know, again, I use the medical model one of the few times I will. You could be the best orthopedic surgeon in the country, right? But I don't think you would want the best orthopedic surgeon in the country to do a triple bypass on someone, right? They, in fact, they would refer them to someone that focuses on that or, you know, a, a, uh, a thoracic surgeon that does a little bit of, you know, more of that. We need to be aware of that, right? And again, you know, it doesn't just destroy the addict or the alcoholic. It destroys family, friends, social, the connections, everything about it, right? And to be different is the key. It takes guts to be the person that is sober. It's been said lately, I like it, that sober is the new sexy. You know, I don't need a drink to have fun, to dance, to do anything I want to do, right? And I refuse to buy into, well, you can never enjoy a gourmet meal. Well, then it's not really a gourmet meal, ladies and gentlemen, if you need alcohol, you know, uh, to do that, right? So it takes guts to be different. And many times if you help people, that's what they have to discover, right? And again, if you have any questions, just reach out. I'll happily share what I know with you. Have a great day.